This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. So, I am joined today by Ben Yu at our end in the studio, and our job by interviewee for today is Dr. Justin Bray here in the department. So, how are you keeping, Justin? Fine, thanks, Jake. So, I should say at this point, for the benefit of the listeners, that you are not in the studio with us. You are actually speaking to us over what is kind of Skype, but isn't Skype, but never mind. You're speaking to us all the way from Australia. So, what have you been up to out there? Well, I'm not just speaking to you from Australia. I'm speaking to you from just about uh, the most remote part of Australia I could get to. Uh, I'm at uh, Bulardi Station, about uh, 50 kilometres from the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory. Uh, so um, this is the, um, the, the most remote observatory in Australia, uh, as far away from the humans and their radio interference as possible, uh, intended as the site for the, um, for the uh, ASCAP and MWA uh, telescopes and uh, the future site of the, square, the low-frequency component of the Square Kilometre Array. And uh, the reason I am now 50 kilometers away from it is because they wanted uh, even the uh, electronic noise from the uh, ovens and uh, uh, washing machines and so on to be that far away from the instruments. So uh, I I have quite a a commute at the moment. It sounds like it. So the instruments that are being put in place out there, they are even sensitive to things like ovens and microwaves and such. Uh, Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, Okay. So, as I understand it, you've been developing some new detector technologies to go in these telescopes out there. Can you maybe tell us a bit about that, what you've been up to? Uh, Sure, sure. So, um, these uh, radio telescopes are are designed to look at um, radio signals coming from uh, deep space, uh, from a galaxy, outside a galaxy, and and, uh, so on. Uh, What I'm interested in doing is using them to detect uh, radio waves coming from our own atmosphere, uh, when a uh, when a high energy cosmic ray interacts in the atmosphere above the telescope and generates this uh, cascade of uh, high energy particles, um, but by uh, observing this uh, cascade both both through radio waves and with particle detectors at ground level, between the two, it's possible to get a good idea of what the original cosmic ray was. And this is something that's been done very successfully for the last few years, uh, in particular with the uh, LUPAR telescope in the Netherlands. And uh, I've been trying to develop the particle detector component of the system to go alongside the radio telescopes here to do the uh, same thing in Murchison, Australia. Ah, okay. So could we maybe take a step back for the benefit of the listeners and for people like me who've had a few years since they've had to do particle physics as an undergrad? So can you maybe explain a little about what are cosmic rays? What do we mean when we say that? So cosmic rays are high-energy particles coming from space, bombarding the Earth uh, all the time. Uh, What they are physically is um, uh, atomic nuclei stripped of all their electrons. They can range from uh, hydrogen nuclei, that is protons, all the way up to to iron nuclei. And they have such high energies, they move just a a hair's breadth slower than the speed of light, uh, and so energetic that when they hit the atmosphere, they they, uh, generate this cascade of high-energy particles coming down to the ground. Ah, okay. So our conventional detectors, well, conventional by astronomical standards, CCD detectors, they would not be sensitive to these events. Is that correct? Uh, when you say uh, a detector, you're t- you said a, a CCD is in a charge-coupled device. Yes. Yes. Uh, so the um, uh, optical telescopes generally use uh, CCD arrays to detect um, uh, photons being focused by the mirror. 
uh, of a reflective telescope onto the uh, focal plane, CCDs do actually detect cosmic rays by accident. Uh, some cosmic rays uh, interacting the atmosphere produce uh, muons, which uh, uh, move, uh, come down through the atmosphere and pass through the um, CCD array of a, an optical telescope and uh, leave uh, a spurious bright pixels. So um, from the point of view of an optical astronomer, uh, cosmic rays are a source of noise rather than signal. Ah, okay. But from your perspective, these are precisely the signal that you are hoping to detect. Yes, exactly. Uh, now, a, a CCD ray itself is a little bit small, so I needed to build a, a bigger detector than that. Oh, okay. So how big was this detector that you've ultimately had to build? Okay, so um, uh, sorry, I should add, add a caveat here that this is uh, not um, uh, just my own work. I, there's been a, I've received a great deal of assistance, uh, in particular from uh, um, uh, Professor Ralph Spencer at Jodrell Bank. Um, but okay, so the um, the detector itself uh, is a uh, about a square meter in size. It looks like a big metal pizza box, uh, and inside it, it contains a slab of uh, perspex doped with some interesting chemicals, uh, such that when a high energy particle passes through that slab it uh, scintillates. It produces a, um, a few tens of thousands of uh, visible or near-ultraviolet photons. Within the detector, then, there are some uh, photodetectors, uh, not CCD arrays, uh, another type, uh, another type, uh, silicon photomultipliers, that uh, detect that optical pulse, uh, tr transform back to an electrical pulse, uh, that sends me a signal saying that, uh, yes, this detector has just detected something. Ah, okay. So... Can this detector be pointed to a specific place on the sky, or is it just generally looking out for cosmic rays that come its way? Uh, it's looking across uh, pretty much the whole sky at any given time. Uh, like I said, it's a, a, a square metre device that detects when a high-energy particle passes through it from pretty much any direction. Uh, from directions other than directly upward, obviously the, the projected area of, of the detector is a bit smaller. So it's most sensitive directly upwards. But uh, other than that, yes, it's sensitive uh, across the, the whole sky to some extent. That's pretty impressive. So let's say that you have a cosmic ray that comes in from a direction other than directly upwards. How mm -hmm. can you localize it? How can you tell where a particle which has caused some particular event has come from? Ah, Now, for that, you need more than one detector. Ah, um, OK. Uh, if you have multiple detectors then the, um, the original cosmic rays creates this, this cascade which ha has a, uh, uh, a, sh a shower front that all the high-energy particles are in this uh, plane perpendicular to its direction of motion. And as this um, uh, shower front passes over the Earth, the closest detectors will, go will, be, will detect the signal before the further ones do. And by the delay between them, you can tell what direction the original cosmic ray was coming from. Uh, at the moment, I'm at the stage where I I've built, uh, we've built uh, one detector um, and I, I'm, that's the stage at which I want to actually put it in the field and see whether, what, whether it breaks or not. Uh, but um, the, the next steps involve building more detectors and getting them working together with the radio antennas of uh, the telescopes on site, at which point we will be able to start localising the, the, the cosmic rays. Ah, I see. So whereabouts will these extra detectors be deployed? Will they also be deployed across Murchison, or do you anticipate them going to other sites? Um, we are planning to build out to an array of somewhere between four and eight detectors, 
spread over the core of one particular telescope here, the Murchison Widefield Array. Uh, the first one we've uh, put in on site just, just uh, earlier today uh, is about 20 metres south of the um, what, what they call the Southern Hex, one of the, the core structures of the Murchison Widefield Array. Ah, okay. So when we detect these cosmic showers, what can we tell from them? What can we learn about the universe by studying these things? So the, the big, well, the fundamental question about cosmic rays is uh, where they're coming from. And that's more difficult than you might think, because even if you can figure out the direction from which they arrive at Earth, that's not necessarily where they came from, because they're, they're charged particles and the space is full of magnetic fields and charged particles in magnetic fields follow curved wiggly paths. So it could be coming from over here. We see it coming from over there. Uh, so instead, we try to um, deduce properties of whatever's producing them from the spectrum and the composition of the cosmic rays. That is, uh, how many of them there are at different energies and what types of particles make them up. I mentioned earlier uh, that the LOPAR telescope of the Netherlands has been very successfully studying cosmic rays and have uh, um, improved our understanding of uh, what types of nuclei are most, com most common among cosmic rays. And uh, so uh, what we're aiming here to, uh, to do here is to, to um, uh, improve those measurements further still to be able to uh, determine what, what nuclei are most common among cosmic rays at different energies. Ah, okay. So do we... It sounds like we have some kind of picture from LOFAR about what kinds of nuclei are most prevalent. So what does that look like at the moment? Do we typically see lots of small nuclei or lots of large ones? Or is it some kind of distribution? So they're dominated by uh, light nuclei in general, um, uh, probably pr uh, protons at lower energies. We have uh, indications from uh, another, another uh, instrument, the ROJ Observatory, uh, that there is a shift towards a, a heavier composition at the very top end of the energy scale. Uh, and they're, they're investigating whether this is a mix of, um, say, protons and iron, or as their measurements suggest currently, a, a, um, a mixture of intermediate nuclei around oxygen sort of mass. Um, what uh, LOFAR uh, announced a, a year or so ago was that in the intermediate energy range, the uh, nuclei had a, a larger fraction of um, uh, protons or helium uh, than would have been expected uh, for, for consistency with the, OJ, with the results from Pierre Auger. Uh, but whether their protons or helium makes a big difference in terms of how far they can travel before they interact with, with background photon fields, whether they can reach us uh, over long distances. Um, so uh, I think perhaps that's the, the corner where I'd be most interested in, in the uh, trying to investigate further. Oh, okay. So in this intermediate bracket. Yes. Yes. The, the, uh, the lower energy cosmic rays are generally thought to be from within our galaxy. The highest energy ones probably from outside our galaxy and this intermediate energy range. And when I say intermediate, they are still rid ridiculously high energy by, by everyday standards. Uh, that's the, the energy range in which the transition between the two probably happens. So when we talk about the energy range that we see here and it being high by everyday standards, what kind of energies do these particles typically have? Uh, in the, what I'm calling the intermediate range, uh, I would say is around uh, 10 to the 17 to 10 to the 18 electron volts. 
So, um, so in scientific, in scientific notation, this is one followed by 17 or 18 zeros, electron volts, which is probably not a unit you, you, uh, most listeners will have used. So, uh, okay, so for comparison, the Large Hadron Collider, the particle accelerator at CERN, um, uh, accelerates uh, protons up to energies of around 10 to the 13 electron volts. So these uh, particles are 10,000, 100,000 times as energetic as are produced in the Large Hadron Collider. Wow. So we're several orders of magnitude above that then. Yes, something out there in the universe is a particle accelerator uh, far more energetic than within uh, anything we can produce, and it would be, it would be nice to know what that is. Mm. So we then have to go out and look up at the sky to have access to that laboratory, as it were, because we can't replicate it here at home. Exactly. Ah, okay. So not without not without a particle accelerator the size of the Earth. Mm. That that would cost quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, and we're using the earth. I can imagine there would be opposition to that. So I guess the big question that I haven't touched on at this point is what kind of object out there could accelerate these particles to such high energies? What could produce these? So we have um, some fairly well thought out models as to how uh, lower energy particles can be gradually accelerated to higher energies through Uh, interactions with regions of magnetic turbulence, wherever you have um, uh, shock fronts between uh, different uh, magnetized regions in space, you can get uh, particles being accelerated by them. And the um, foremost uh, class of source, I would say, is uh, the remnants left over by supernovae. So when a supernova goes off, um, you've got this expanding shock front with the the interstellar medium, and that's a, 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 a... a, a wonderful environment to accelerate cosmic rays. And there is a, a evidence from the gamma ray observations of these uh, directly that, that uh, they are accelerating hadrons, that is cosmic ray nuclei up to high energies. However, there are some, there's a fairly good uh, theoretical limit as to how high an energy you can reach with a supernova remnant. Uh, as the cosmic ray becomes more energetic, it starts to zoom around in ever, ever larger circles, and eventually the circle's large enough that it uh, escapes the supernova end. So the higher energy ones probably do not come from them. Uh, some uh, possible sources, there's, uh, there are suggestions regarding the galactic centre, uh, regarding um, uh, outside a galaxy, uh, active galactic nuclei are generally a, a, uh, uh, a favoured source among many theorists, or the, the, the lobes of radio galaxies. Uh, whatever it is, it has to be something... Uh, large or has or with a strong magnetic field or if at all possible both ah okay so what I'm wondering about with these supernovae shell because obviously a supernova can only go off once and that's it it's a one and done affair and so so they can still end up accelerating cosmic rays for quite some time after they've gone off and the shell expands? Yes, for tens of thousands of years afterwards. Ah, okay. Uh, So uh, if you look at the sky in radio, um, uh, uh, supernovae are a relatively rare thing um, because they are, as you say, one and done. Uh, You you only have a very short chance to glimpse them. But supernova remnants, the expanding shock fronts left over from supernovae, since they last so long, uh, many of these are seen in the radio. Hmm, Okay. So one of the points that I've got down here is that these detectors need to be kept very cold 
in a hot environment in the Australian outback. So, why do we need to do that? So they don't necessarily need to be kept cold, but they do perform better that way. Uh, the I mentioned earlier that the the type of um, uh, sensor we use to detect the the um, light pulse from the scintillator is a silicon photomultiplier. Uh, the reason we use that rather than a CCD array, which you mentioned earlier, is that uh, it has a very fast response. Uh, a single photon hitting it will immediately cause a little breakdown in a tiny little uh, avalanche photodiode and cause a, a, uh, a an electrical pulse. However, the more you heat up the um, uh, the silicon photomultiplier, the more you can get that sort of breakdown avalanche thing happening spontaneously. Uh, and so the, the, the rate of background false detections from a single chip uh, increases as the temperature does. Now, we get around this to some extent by using uh, several of these chips. Uh, and so we only count something as a detection if it sets off several of them at once. Uh, I did consider various means of temperature stabilization, but they, they all turned out to be impractical for engineering reasons. Ah, uh, okay. So is this an, an issue of dark current, essentially, what we're seeing here? Yes, dark current is it, it exactly. Hmm. Ah, uh, okay. So, so it's down to the inherent nature of what these devices are made out of? Uh, yes. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So... For our listeners, if you ever see dark current referred to in the literature for CCDs or anything else, because there are CCDs that you can buy for astrophotography. They're pricey, but it can be done. So that's what they're referring to there. It's a problem that doesn't go away. Right, so Ben, do you have any questions to chip in with? Yeah, I have uh, a question, but a not, not so scientific question. Just uh, uh, what kind of environment you are living So. You you mentioned that you uh, the detector is built in a hot de- hot desert. So do you need to uh, work or live nearby the device or from a more distant uh, place to control it? So you're asking uh, if the detector is in a remote location, how I control it from a long distance away? Yes. Yes. So fortunately, there is quite a bit of infrastructure at the observatory. Uh, built to uh, service the radio telescopes on site. So in, in this case, I, I've uh, placed the detector uh, about 100 metres from the, the nearest support building. Uh, incidentally, um, the listeners won't be able to see the video, but I am rather sunburdened at present because uh, I and three other people spent uh, all this afternoon in 40-plus in, uh, degree heat um, oh. threading, the, uh, th- th- threading, threading the cables through some protective piping uh, to, to get them to, to the support building. Um, uh, that building itself is, of course, a, a screened room. Um, that, that is, the, all the electronics inside it is enclosed in a conductive shield to prevent uh, interference from leaking interfering with the telescope. Uh, and itself, uh, uh, it acts mainly as a relay for the connection to go along another six kilometres of fibre to another uh, support building, which contains one screened room inside another screened room, both of them with airlocks to make sure that uh, when somebody opens the door, you don't get interference leaking out. Somebody opens the outer door, steps inside, closes the door, opens the inner door, then steps inside the, the, the room itself. Wow, that's impressive. I'm imagining it's got those hand scanners that you see in sci-fi movies. Uh, no, no hand scanners, I'm afraid. Oh, 
Yeah, I suppose the budget wouldn't stretch to those reasonably. So yeah, but it is a good point though about how a lot of observing has to be done remotely because the telescopes are in inaccessible areas or areas that just aren't really comfortable for humans to be in. I mean, Alma is a prime example of that. It's what, 5,000 metres up? Something like that, yes. Yeah. In the case of Alma, uh, the the main motivation was to be above most of the atmosphere. Yes. Uh, in the case of low-frequency radio, you don't care as much about the atmosphere. Well, you do care about the ionosphere, but to be above that, you need a mountain 500 kilometres tall. Uh, so so your secondary motivation then is just to be away from humans and their radio interference, and then you have to be careful not to bring any interference with you. Mm. So you have to select as remote a site as you can and then keep humans away from that site as far as possible. Yes, exactly. Okay. So looking ahead to the future, perhaps, do you anticipate detector arrays like this being rolled out for other radio sites around the world? Will the SKA component in South Africa maybe have something like this? Uh, so this sort of um, application of radio telescopes works best with uh, one particular type, um, aperture array radio telescopes, which consist of, rather than your, your classic um, uh, parabolic dish-shaped antennas, they consist of um, uh, spiky wire antennas on the ground that get combined electronically. Now, the, the reason for this is that uh, in the telescopes like that, every individual antenna sees the whole sky, like the particle detectors do. Uh, so um, there are several aperture array radio telescopes which are being used for this purpose. I mentioned LOFAR, uh, the uh, LWA in the US. Uh, there's some initial work being done uh, on, on using it that way. And uh, the uh, Murchison Widefield Array in Australia is, is the one that we're, we're starting to use here. And in the future, the low frequency component of the square kilometre array at this site, the same site as the Murchison Widefield Array, uh, will be the world's largest array of radio antennas, and what we're doing here is setting us up to properly exploit that. Ah, okay. Fantastic. Well, I don't know about you, Justin, but that feels like a natural place to call it. Unless there are any more questions from our end? I have uh, another question, maybe stupid, because I know nothing about uh, particle uh, physics. So I I know that there is another particle like, capture or detector in Japan, uh, it's built for capture the neutrino, and it's uh, it's behind the, the so it's built underground about maybe 100 meters underground. So what's the difference between these two particle detector? So that's a very good question. So I think you're probably talking about the detector Super Kamiokande. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. So for, for for detecting different types of particles, you want different types of detectors. And for uh, cosmic rays, generate cascades that mostly reach just down to ground level or sometimes penetrate a few metres into the rock. Uh, and so for detecting the, those cosmic rays indirectly, you want to detect those particles at ground level. However, if you're looking for neutrinos, those particles are an annoying background. So if you want to, and neutrinos will go straight through the Earth, so they could interact anywhere. So if you want to detect just neutrinos without detecting all the muons and electrons and positrons produced by cosmic rays, you want to, to place your detector underground, uh, which is the approach that uh, Subikami Kande has taken. Uh, in terms of the actual mechanism by which the detector works, I believe Subikami Kande uses photomultiplier tubes, another type of high time resolution um, optical sensor, 
So, are sources of cosmic rays typically also sources of lots of neutrinos? Quite likely. If cosmic rays are being accelerated by some source, then if they interact while accelerating, which you would typically expect to happen occasionally, those interactions can produce neutrinos. So the the sort of neutrinos detected by Super Kamiokande will generally be lower energy ones, I believe, um, that you would not expect to be associated with the very high energy uh, cosmic ray sources. But the uh, ice cube uh, array at the South Pole detects neutrinos at extremely high energies and is providing us with some some uh, interesting indications of, of potential uh, cosmic ray sources. And the, the benefit here is that the neutrinos, since they're uncharged particles, they travel in straight lines, they point directly back to their sources. Ah, okay. So is there the potential maybe to work with the data you're getting out of IceCube to localise the sources that you're seeing with your detectors? Uh, the trouble is because uh, the cosmic rays follow wiggly paths, that it's very hard to associate them with specific sources. So that some of them might come from the same sources from which IceCube detects neutrinos, but it would be very hard to tell which. Uh, the other way to try to associate them is by the time at which they arrive. But again, those wiggly paths work against you because if, if they uh, uh, follow a wiggly path, they might take tens of thousands of years longer than the neutrinos to reach us. Even though they may have originally left at around the same time. Exactly. Ah, yeah, that, that is a rascal. Is, is there any way around that that we have at the moment? One possible way to look for coincidences is to look for gamma rays arriving from a source at the same, in the same location as neutrinos. Uh, so the same sort of interactions, like accelerating cosmic rays that produce neutrinos, can also produce gamma rays. And the gamma rays also travel directly to us, and they interact in the atmosphere like cosmic rays and can be detected like cosmic rays. The trouble is, because they are detected like cosmic rays, they're very hard to tell apart from cosmic rays. Ah, so then you run into that new problem. Yes. So if we were extremely lucky, we might be able to uh, identify that, uh, detect some cosmic rays and say that they were actually uh, definitely gamma rays. Uh, but that would, uh, that we would have to be quite lucky for that, I believe. Hmm. So it's a real multi-messenger puzzle that we're facing here then. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay, for thanks very much, Jake. Ben. Go put some after sun on. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. See you then.